0: The UPR original series, Crossing Borders, is a year-long storytelling project between UPR and the USU Office of Global Engagement, providing services for international students and scholars, and facilitating study abroad opportunities for students and faculty. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. And to explore more of the Crossing Borders series, head over to upr.org.
1: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. When Jackson Olson graduated from college, he had every intention of going to law school and becoming a lawyer, but before pursuing those plans, he took a temporary hiatus from being a student and decided to become a teacher instead. Along with his wife, Jackson joined Teach for America, signing on for a two-year stint in the rural low-income community of Henderson, North Carolina, What he experienced during those two years changed his life forever. He has a book out called Teaching for America, Life and the Struggle for One Day. It's a compelling account of the astounding conditions he encountered in a struggling school and the difficult decisions he had to make regarding his career. Sometimes brutal, sometimes comical, all times honest and sincere, it paints a vivid picture of the inequities and injustices in our public school system and tells the powerful stories of the students and teachers are impacted by them. Jackson Olson is now the founding principal of Henderson Collegiate High School in North Carolina. He holds a degree in journalism from Utah State University and a Master's of School Administration from North Carolina State University, pursuing his doctorate in educational leadership from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and lives in North Carolina with his wife and daughter and a dog. Jackson Olson joins us for the hour. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, you recently talked with uh, Mary Hears and uh, Carrie Bringhurst for a feature in this series, Crossing Borders that we have. Let's uh, hear this now, and uh, then we will uh, we'll talk more about uh, Jackson Olson's interesting experiences.
0: During Utah Public Radio's year-long storytelling project, Crossing Borders, you'll meet Jackson Olson. After growing up in Utah's Cache Valley and graduating Utah State University, Olson relocated to North Carolina, a former teacher with Teach for America. Olson has written a book, Teaching for America, Life in the Struggle for One Day.
2: In um, 2009, my wife and I both joined Teach for America, and Teach for America places recent college graduates in some of the neediest public schools throughout the country. Moving to North Carolina was not uh, that big of a challenge. I had lived in the South for a couple of years, and so being a teacher crossed the border of my comfort zone because you're constantly on, you're constantly performing, you constantly have the needs and the wants and the responsibilities of 25 students, and then another 25, and then another 25, and then another 25. This was my first day of summer school training where I was actually teaching a world history course to students on the south side of Chicago. I could hear the unmistakable sounds of students' voices from down the hallway. I looked up to see a group of four of them walking toward me. My stomach twisted as I quickly straightened up and took a quick glance at my clipboard. My heart raced like a jackrabbit. Only one student continued to walk in my direction. The girl was short, black, and very round, Her shirt was low-cut and revealed an enormous bosom that she clearly wasn't trying to hide. She wore a denim jacket and jeans, both plastered with colors, intricate patterns of stitching and rhinestones. She walked right up to me and almost made it into the classroom before I could interject. Hi, I said enthusiastically, doing my best impression of a person who wasn't panicking. I'm Mr. Olson. I put my hand out for her to shake. Without a smile or a grin, or even a hint of recognition, she walked past my outstretched hand and into the room. She took a seat in the back row and took out her cell phone. Like good and bad angels on my shoulders, I couldn't decide whether to be friendly or firm. "'So you're Bianca?' I said in a friendly tone. "Mm "'Mm-hmm.' Even her grunt was laced with attitude. "'Well, it's nice to meet you, Bianca.' No response. I looked down at my clipboard again, as though there were safety there. "'Do you like history?' Bianca didn't take the bait, but I didn't have time to react to her indifference. Another group of students, a much larger group than the first, was headed in my direction. I rushed to the door to greet them. Before I knew it, I had a classroom full of rowdy teenagers. Lord, help me, I thought to myself. Sweet, merciful Jesus, be my wingman. In fact, I'll never forget, uh, on Mother's Day in 2010... was a first-year teacher, and um, I told my students on the Friday before Mother's Day to make sure that they went home um, this weekend and did something nice for their mothers. Um, And then I remember hearing one of my students say, and my kid better do something for me too this weekend. I just didn't even comprehend the fact that, holy cow, one of my students has a a child already and and is a mother, and how that's affected her life, and Some of those things just really kind of slapped me in the face. My students in North Carolina are accustomed to the sounds of gunshots in the neighborhood. Um, I was writing down all the crazy things that were happening to me, and I I didn't want to forget what these two years were like. I was encouraged by one of my former professors at Utah State, Mike Sweeney, and he just kept encouraging me. He said, if you can write, write. Tell this story. With his encouragement and guidance, I, I just kept kind of, putting pieces together and it became a a book I don't have in the book a bunch of prescriptions for fixing education I want people to be awoken to the same uh, realities that I was awoken to on my first day of teaching because if everybody was aware of how how grim the circumstances are in some of these schools we would do something about it we wouldn't just sit uh, back and say well that's the way it is you know that's a poor community that's how poor communities are it can be fixed. It can be changed. It just takes more than a few people uh, to be aware of it and to be acting on it. So back in 2015, uh, I started Henderson Collegiate High School, which is a a charter high school in North Carolina. 95% of our students qualify for free or reduced price lunch through the federal school lunch program. Generally, the research agrees that uh, the number one factor that will help determine a student's success are the teachers that are in front of the classroom on a daily basis. So if that's true, then um, the number one priority for me as a principal is to ensure that I have good teachers in front of my students. But I want my first graduating class to make it to college before I consider crossing any physical borders. Uh, so we'll be in North Carolina at least till then. Um, and then in terms of what's next, uh, for me, I plan just to remain in the fight somewhere um, for for educational equity. I don't know where it will be or what title I'll hold, but I don't see myself leaving this fight or crossing a border into any other uh, career path.
0: Justin Olson grew up in Logan, Utah. He is the author of Teaching for America, Life in the Struggle for One Day. This segment of Crossing Borders was produced by Carrie Bringhurst and Mary
1: Hears. So that's our Crossing Borders piece, uh, part of the uh, the series, and uh, this program is part of that series as as well. We have Jackson Olson with us uh, on the line, and uh, Jackson Olson, very interesting hearing some of your experiences there. Uh, Before we get into how you got into teaching, that's a very interesting story. I just want to read one paragraph from the prologue to the book. The book is Teaching for America, Life and the Struggle for One Day. Uh, So you talk about teachers. You say their task is daunting. Students from low-income communities are roughly three years behind their more affluent peers in reading, with about half at risk of not completing high school. African Americans, American Indians, and Latinos are disproportionately affected by the culture of poverty and are statistically more likely to drop out than white students. High school dropouts create an economic vacuum by earning less over their lifetime, which amounts to billions of dollars lost each year in unrealized tax revenue. Add to the fact that dropouts are more likely to receive government assistance in the form of welfare, food stamps, and or Medicaid. And you've got yourself a two-pronged national crisis of education and economics. The third prong is criminal in nature. All of the American prisons and correctional facilities, in all the American prisons and correctional facilities, approximately 70% of inmates are high school dropouts. Um, and you go on to say, Jackson Olsen, that the, you are not aware of these inequities. Many of us are not. One of your purposes is to awake us to, to these realities, right?
3: That's right. Yeah, I um, I grew up in Logan and graduated uh, from Logan High School in 2003. And um, had I not had these experiences as a teacher, uh, I wouldn't have realized actually how good my education was. It's something that I I definitely took for granted, um, and it took me coming to North Carolina and teaching on the south side of Chicago to realize um, just how dire the circumstances can be uh, in some of our communities. And so uh, that was one of the, the motivations that I had to write this book was simply the uh, – Maybe maybe someone will read this and wake up to the realities that I woke up to, and and maybe together we can push in the right direction together.
1: You paint a picture in the book. Uh, I think this is in North Carolina. The the schools in the more affluent areas, they've got money pouring in. They've got volunteers. They've got uh, paid uh, tutors. And in the poorer areas, you've got uh, maps uh, that don't have the Soviet Union broken up. You know, outdated materials and the yeah. like. Uh, it's it's yeah. it's quite the stark difference.
3: Yeah, um, and and that is uh, especially true at least in in our state, here in North Carolina. Um, the the gap between the affluent and and the poor is is very wide, um, but it's something that you can see just driving from one end of town to the other. Um, it's something that you can see uh, by driving just really even thirty miles um, from Henderson, where I taught and where I currently uh, work as a principal is the town of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is kind of seen as as this, this bastion of of intellectual thought and and progressive uh, um, politics and this great bastion of, of, you know, achievement. And yet just in the shadow of this little town are all these rural communities um, devastated by poverty and by failing schools. And so it really, it, it just, wakes you up to the reality when you think of a kid who could be born in just one zip code away just 30 miles had he been born and raised in a community just 30 mi- miles away his entire life trajectory would be altered um and so there are, are big gaps um and some of that has to do with the way that schools are funded um you know in in, in affluent communities in north carolina Um, Money can be produced uh, through the property tax uh, and, of course, with higher property taxes, a lot more money flows into the schools. And there's also, um, you know, just local politics. County commissioners can add local supplements to to fund schools. Um, And that's happening, again, disproportionately in the more affluent communities and less in the communities stricken by poverty.
1: Now, this can be depressing. You know, as I read those statistics, I uh it, it seems like a lot of these kids it's almost deterministic right if you're if you're have the bad fortune to be born in one of the poor communities or the rural communities uh your your fate is almost you know written um that's where I guess idealistic people come in was that your impulse to to go teach for teach for america yeah
3: i I do think that there was a lot of idealism behind it um you know i, I talk about in the book how I was raised um, by parents who really, first and foremost, taught us to, uh, to really love other people. Um, I remember my dad uh, when I was growing up. He would he would tell me, you know, you know, can you invite anyone from the other side of town or from the other side of the tracks or something like that? And, and he would just always be encouraging me to reach out to other people who didn't have friends. Um, he would pick up hitchhikers on the side of the road when we'd be driving you know, on the interstate or on the highway. And he just, through his example and through my mother's example, they always taught us to just serve and to love one another. Um, and so that's a big credit to them, but it, it was kind of embedded in me to say like, yeah, if there's, if there's problems and social ills, let's do whatever we can to try and fix them. And so Teach for America is, is an organization that attracts a lot of people, uh, with those ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your earlier point um, of determinism and this idea that this this problem is it's grim, um, but that is that is uh, precisely why people try to fix it. And the good news is that there are people succeeding in reversing the effects of poverty and reversing the course of some of these um, low-income communities and students who are, you know, by the complete lottery of birth. Uh, forced to attend uh, schools or be in a school district that, that might be low-performing. So I do think there are a lot of examples of, of this cycle being broken and, and reversed.
1: Can you give us a couple? Give us, give us some hope. There, You say there are some things that are working.
3: Um, yeah, well, uh, there are uh, every year the, the Department of Education honors uh, blue-ribbon schools, um, and so there are just hundreds of schools uh, that you can look down the list over the years um, in inner cities uh low income communities uh, from an urban metropolis uh to uh, the rural you know low income areas uh in rural america uh there are also um, some schools that I, I speak about briefly uh that have had a lot of success specifically with um, urban youth uh in low performing school districts like chicago new york newark new jersey um and so there are schools right now that are sending 100% of their students to college, um, even though 100% of their students are coming from uh, household incomes that are below the poverty line. Um, examples of that uh, would include the Knowledge is Power program to the national network of, of schools that targets uh, uh, low-income communities, um, the Uncommon School Network. But there really is, is no magic formula. It doesn't have to be charter or Private or public or traditional, there, there are schools all over the country that are doing it.
1: No, I mean conventional wisdom would say you have to have resources, right? Pour more money in, uh, but I'm guessing that uh, that's not so much the formula. Although you have to have a certain base level of resources. What 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 are some common denominators in the successful programs that are happening?
3: Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and, and often uh, a big misconception uh, because. Uh, In fact, the United States does spend, uh, on average, far more per pupil, uh, per student, than most countries. Uh, And if you look at the countries that are outperforming us on, um, you know, international PISA-type tests, uh, most of the countries that are are outdoing us or outsmarting us uh, do it with less money. So it is a misconception to say that more money is the solution. Um, I would say that... um, Investing in teachers is probably the biggest way that money could be used more wisely. But it's not that money is a non-factor. It's, it's just that money isn't a silver bullet to fix schools. And there's, you know, again, just countless examples of schools that have state-of-the-art facilities or all this money for whatever programs and the, the schools can still fail. But what I would say, money plays a, a huge role, I think, in trying to attract and retain teachers. I think that is really the issue that is hurting schools the most. Because if you look at why white schools fail, there there is never one reason. There's usually a long list. But at the top of the list, I would put um, the absence of high quality teachers. And teacher retention is something that is um, is a struggle because generally, uh, of course, I'm speaking in broad terms here, but. Generally, teachers are underpaid and underappreciated. And it's a, it's a demanding job that, um, contrary to what many people think, takes more than nine months out of the year to do, um, and takes certainly more than an eight hour work day to do. And so teachers are really just overwhelmed and overworked, and a lot of them have looked to greener pastures. Um, and we've lost a lot of great teachers. Who just thought like this job is just too hard. It it also doesn't pay well, um, and I don't know enough about Utah uh, and and where they stack up against the rest of the country. But North Carolina has one of the lowest teacher uh, average teacher incomes in the country, even with a low cost of living. That tells people when they you know enter college or when they graduate from college, hey, teaching is not a really viable career path, which is a, which is a narrative we have to change. So. I would say that if, if resources are to be the answer or if we're trying to talk about how money plays a big role in it, if I were in charge, I would put a lot more money into investing in teachers, uh, not only in their recruitment, but in supporting them, entertaining them and, and paying them what they deserve, which, unless you're in a very small minority of teachers in this country, is simply not enough.
1: Well, back in the book, you write, I think, between year one and year two at Henderson Middle School, your Teach for America experience, uh... A third of the teachers were were gone. Uh, that illustrates yeah. the, that retention problem. Also, when you came back, apparently half your stuff was gone in your classroom.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was it was a tough it was a tough um, August, I guess you could say. <laughs> I came back, and a lot of my teachers that I knew very well and got to know over that year had left. Um, and then all of my stuff was gone. Um, I never did find it, so I ended up just starting over. Uh, mm-hmm. All of my school supplies, all of my teaching supplies, I just mm-hmm. had to build up my tool kit one more time.
1: Yeah. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into your uh, story, how you uh, went from, uh, you were going to become a lawyer, right? Follow your dad's footsteps. Um, yeah. Kind yeah. of classic, uh, classic uh, story, and then, and then your life took a turn, and now you're now you're a teacher, a principal. Um, more with Jackson Olson. The book is Teaching for America: Life and the Struggle for One Day. Following this break. This is Science by the Slice.
0: Can helium bond with other elements to form a stable compound?
2: If you're on Earth, the answer is no. But all bets are off if you journey to the center of the Earth or venture to Jupiter or Saturn. USU chemists Alex Boldarev and Ivan Popov are among a team that demonstrated helium under high pressure bonds with sodium to form a stable compound. Our understanding of chemistry has to expand beyond the confines of our planet, says Boldarev.
0: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science. Offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu/science.
1: Thanks for listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, we're talking with Jackson Olson. When he graduated from college, he had every intention of going to law school, becoming a lawyer. But before pursuing those plans, he took a temporary hiatus from becoming a student, decided to become a teacher instead. He joined Teach for America, signing on for a two-year stint in the rural low-income community of Henderson, North Carolina. What experience during those two years changed his life forever? He talks about it in his book, Teaching for America, Life and the Struggle for one day. You're uh, welcome to join the conversation if you would like at upraccess at com. That's our uh, email, upraccess at com. You can call us with your question or comment to 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Uh, Jackson Olson, before we jump into your uh, your story, the subtitle is intriguing, Life in the Struggle for One Day. What What is that one day?
3: Uh, yeah, so one day is, um, is part of the uh, slogan of Teach for America. So Teach for America um, is famous for its, its slogan that says, One day all children in this nation will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. So that's kind of their, um, their mantra, their their slogan, and it's something that as a Teach for America core member we heard a lot. Um, and so this was my two-year experience, my struggle, in the fight for providing that one day for my students, uh, the hope. It, it kind of represents the hope that we as a nation can one day provide an excellent education, not just to a few students, uh, but to all of our students.
1: All children. That, that's idealistic. Uh, do you think that's within reach? I guess you, as a, as a teacher, as a principal, you try to reach as many students as you can, and, and that's where you make your impact, but that, that's, that's quite the ideal, all children
3: yeah well I, I think um I think it is an ambitious goal and and maybe a little bit uh, overly idealistic, but I actually think there is some some truth to it, some reality and some some it's i think it is a realistic uh, aspiration. if you think about providing an an excellent education to all students, that doesn't necessarily mean that all students are going to take an excellent education and become perfect citizens and become you know, uh, degree holding uh, or, you know, master's or graduate students or whatever, you know, it doesn't mean that every student's going to achieve the perfect life, but it does say that we're at least providing them with the tools to do so, and then those students choose their own path. So as an educator, I have to believe, I have to hope that it is possible, um, that we can provide every student with a an excellent education, um, and, and I think I, I make the point that, uh, at the end of my book that there are so many schools in even the worst neighborhoods or the worst communities or the toughest, most, you know, poverty stricken communities. There are schools who are succeeding. And so I think it, it allows us to change the narrative and change the conversation from can it be done uh, to how can we do it on a bigger scale? How can we how can we scale up the success, uh, where these pockets are finding it and bring it to every single student in the country? Mm. Um, and so I, I, do think it's probably more realistic than people think. Um, but certainly not to say that it's, it's going to be easy or it's going to be a fast fix. There is, there really truly is no silver bullet solution to fixing education. Um, there are just uh, thousands of small percent solutions that we can uh, take one at a time and apply it. And I think what we need to do is, is look at the success that certain schools or districts or or networks are having and and scale them.
1: Uh, I want to get into your personal story. You uh, grew up in Cache Valley, right? Um, um yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people in northern Utah, anyway, will know your father, Herm Olson, um, yeah. uh city councilman here and a prominent uh, attorney I don't know him well, but I, what I know of him is quite admirable. He's he, he's quite an idealistic person, right? And, and you've kind of followed in, tried to follow in those footsteps.
3: Yeah, yeah. I um, I was very fortunate. Uh, again, my parents raised us with a uh, just a, a great home environment and provided us with a, a, a safe place to learn and to to grow, and sent us to the local public schools. Uh, which again, I I said that. Uh, I didn't realize how good my education was until I saw what other students would have gotten. What would have happened had I grown up in, in Henderson, North Carolina instead of Cache Valley, Utah? What would my life have turned out to be instead? So, I owe a lot um, to to my parents and to my family for uh, for my upbringing and for my education and allowed me to do a lot of great things.
1: Your, your mom sounds great as well. She, uh, she apparently would. Uh, her favorite song is "The Wind Beneath My Wings."
3: <laughs> yeah uh yeah that was just uh kind of a corny insert but it's true and and uh, my mom and i still laugh over that but um when i was growing up she used to sing that song to me every time i would have to go shovel snow <laughs> in sub-zero weather <laughs> in cash valley which is uh actually one of the things that i've really loved about north carolina i've had zero Sub zero days out here,
1: which has been great. That's great. No, no, uh, not a whole lot of shoveling snow. Yeah. No, I see. She don't even,
3: I don't even own a snow shovel
1: out here. <laughs> I see. Your mother was motivating you to uh, sing that song to get you motivated and uh, get out and yeah. s- shovel snow.
3: That, that plus a hot cup of hot chocolate
1: was, was the motivation. Yeah. That, that, that always do, will do it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you, you were set. You were going to be a lawyer, right? Um, so what, what, uh, and then uh, you had this, uh, I guess, opportunity, impulse. Uh, what made you decide, I'm going to go take two years and, uh, and do Teach for America?
3: Yeah. Um, well, you know, it was, a, it was an indecisive time in my life. I was a senior at Utah State and um, was trying to figure out kind of the next phase, but I had really had my heart set on, on going into law, and had spent uh, the majority of my senior year doing the process of, of applying to law school. And I had been waitlisted at uh, the University of Utah, which was my top choice. I wanted to go to the University of Utah and follow actually my dad's alma mater. So just felt like it was, you know, kind of destiny. So, um, I applied to, to the University of Utah and was, was waitlisted. Um, and at the same time, my other law school prospects I wasn't very interested in. And then I didn't know if at the end of the day I was going to. To be accepted or not to to the U. So uh, my wife and I applied to teach for America. Really, is kind of a, a it was actually a very last second uh, impulsive decision to apply. We did it on the very last day um, before the very last deadline for that year. So we just thought, you know, who knows? Uh, it'll, it'll be good to have a safety net. And um, long story short, we uh, ended up needing to make a decision with. Uh, Teach for America, we had to make, we had a decision day and we still hadn't heard back from the University of Utah. So we just said, you know what, we haven't heard back. We don't know if the waitlist thing's going to work out. Let's do it. So we committed and said, let's do two years uh, in North Carolina. Um, and then, of course, uh, luck, as luck would have it, just less than a week later, we got the phone call from the University of Utah saying, your seat is ready. You've been accepted. Come on in. And
2: <laughs> we were already, we were
3: already committed elsewhere. So but we said, you know, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll apply again in two years. We didn't have any intent to become educators as a career path. We didn't have any intent to stay in North Carolina. We had no family there. We had no real connection there. But we just thought this is going to be a great experience. It'll, it'll allow us to, you know, grow and learn and, and help where we can. And then, and then we'll come back. Um, but, uh, of course, that that's, that also didn't happen two years later. So yeah. we ended up <laughs> kicking the can down the road and never actually made it back. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Now, you did this together with your wife. Um, so is, is that somewhat unusual? Uh, Teach for America volunteers are usually kind of younger, and I guess maybe yeah. since you were Utah Mormons, you got married a little younger. What what happened there? And Did you do it? I guess you you were equally in this, or did you talk her into it?
3: Um. I definitely talked her into it. Um she would she would kill me if I tried to tell everyone that uh, she was equally on board with me. <laughs> um but she she I convinced her to do it. Um and eventually she she really enjoyed the experience and she became a, an award-winning teacher and she um she's fantastic. Um so but at the at the beginning I was just trying to you know come up with a solution to the law school problem. Um but to your point earlier, yeah, we we were very much um, we very much stood out like a sore thumb when we got to North Carolina when all the other Teach for America people were there, and we were surrounded by all these hundreds of other people. Uh, we were the only married couple. Um, we, uh, we were the only root beer drinkers uh, at <laughs> the crew uh, as well, and um, we were the only people from from Utah, um, so we, we did kind of initially notice just how how unique we were in that group. But at the same time, we fit right in with uh, a group of just incredibly talented people. Um, Teach for America does a great job. It really does. I I have my own criticisms of Teach for America, but one thing I will say for it is that it it does a fantastic job really recruiting some of the best and brightest in the country to this cause. What we need to do a better job of and what I think Teach for America can do a better job of is keeping those great teachers and those, those talented individuals who... If they stayed in in the education uh, world, could do so much to change uh, the realities of it. So, uh, we were kind of a unique uh, couple in that sense, but uh, we also fit right in. We found many quick uh, and great lasting friendships in that group of of uh, other Teach for America core members.
1: Tell me about your your training. You you went to Chicago John Hope High School, and in mm-hmm. the piece we heard, we heard about your first day that that had to be terrifying um um <laughs> yeah. so you but you you had a uh, i was touched by uh you're writing about a mr rigby that's the class you were t- his class you were teaching right
3: yeah
1: um and and you had an experience with a an older student he's, he's 19 years old his name is yeah. D- davion davion Baby on. Mm-hmm. tell me about him and and uh so he, i guess you asked mr rigby well he doesn't really have to be here right he's 19 years old
3: yeah yeah he was a 19 year old in the ninth grade um had been in the ninth grade for about four or five years um and um i i guess you could say we, we butted heads pretty early um because on um, my first day of class was trying to teach and he was not only was he listening to music, he was singing the music, and he was rapping, and he was, um, you know, talking to his friends, and he was, it was just in his own world, in his own element. Um, So I was very green. I didn't really know what to do, so I tried to take him out into the hallway to have a conversation about how we could make this work. And really, uh, I just felt... um felt like a rodeo clown just getting stomped by a by a you know by this entire class really it wasn't just this one student but I just felt like I was getting thrown around and um you know I I never really felt like I, I got good at teaching in those first uh experiences but Mr. Rigby was the uh the actual classroom teacher who was kind of observing and, and supporting me and he just said you, you got to just keep you got to keep working at it and never give up and I kept coming back every day and Sometimes I got beat up, and, you know, sometimes I was the clown, and sometimes I was the bull, I guess. I had a couple of victories, and at the end of it, um, it certainly at least just helped prepare me better for, for the life I would experience in North Carolina.
1: Mr. Rigby said something profound. This uh, really struck me. He called you called you into his back new class, right, uh, after the kids began. Yeah. Do you recall what he what yeah. he told you?
3: Um he told me a lot, but uh, I don't remember. Oh,
1: uh, so the, so the one that the right. one that struck me, uh, he said, uh, you know, stop worrying about teaching and start worrying about the kids. Get to know them.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a, a light bulb moment. Um, because he he then proceeded to tell me about Dave Young's background. Um, he was uh, a father and was expecting his second child. He told me about how he had been, you know, in the ninth grade for five years. Um, he told me about the fact that he was in a a very prominent gang on the South side of Chicago, um, known as the disciples. Um, so it, it was, it was definitely a a kind of a light bulb moment for me to realize who, who am I trying to tell this kid, you know, sit down and listen to me talk about the Renaissance when, you know, who am I to him that that this will make sense? I'm, I'm trying to speak to him, but it's like I'm speaking a foreign language because I just, we have zero connection. And I realized that until there was a connection formed, um, I was never going to speak his language. I was never going to be able to get through to him. Now, I, I can't say that this story ends, you know, perfectly with a happy ending and that everything worked out and he, he turned his life around. But what I can say is that the little bit that I did to get to know Dave Young and to talk with him and to understand where he was coming from and, and to try to understand and to simply empathize, really, because because I'm coming from such a, a, a different background. I mean, our, our backgrounds couldn't be more different. So it took that empathy and that understanding for me to even make some small gains with him. And, that, and we were able to make some small gains with him, but, um, you know, it doesn't have a storybook ending because at the end of the day, he, he didn't end up passing my class. He He actually... He was reading at about a third grade level as a 19 year old uh, man. So there are a lot of sad stories like that um, that that teachers encounter on a daily basis, and I think that's probably true wherever you go. I don't think that's that's a North Carolina or a Chicago thing. I'm sure it's true in a lot of communities in, in Utah or Cache Valley, and really all across the country.
1: What do you What do you do as a teacher? Then you're, you're going to have pe- the students who. Uh, you know, won't succeed to the level that you want them. You you'll have other students who will uh, succeed, and and uh, I guess that gives you hope. What do you? What's that impulse uh, to to help you keep going?
3: Um, I, I think it really for most teachers. I think it is just this idea of you just keep trying. You just throw the kitchen sink at at the student, and and hopefully something will stick. Um, and the the unique thing about this is that sometimes. It will stick, but it won't stick when you think it will. And so you just have to keep trying. And sometimes uh, you do make those breakthroughs, and that's a really powerful uh, and memorable experience for teachers. But um, uh, as educators, we really can't discriminate. um, These kids are the ones who want to learn, and these are the kids who don't. And so I'm going to focus on these. Um, uh, It just is contrary to to what we owe our students. We owe uh, everything we have and, and just to keep coming, keep coming back and keep trying.
1: One other thing struck me about that experience in Chicago. Uh, you said you you asked one of the one of the kids, so "Why aren't you filling out the survey?" And he said, "I don't have a pencil." <laughs> so he, he gives a pencil. Then you then you find out the whole class doesn't have pencils.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was just uh, another kind of quick example of the gaps that I was exposed to, uh, the gaps that I didn't know existed, because if you know, if I was on my first day of school at Hillcrest Elementary. Or my first day of school at Mount Logan or wherever I was, you know, I, I had a pencil. You know, I, my parents made sure of that. And, and for the most part, all my classmates had pencils. Um, and not to say that, you know, Logan City Schools or, or Cash Valley is this utopia of perfect education, but it just, it's just one quick example to help people realize just how wide the gap is, um, where my students, 100% of them in, in that situation in Chicago, uh, were living below the poverty line, and were frequently, um, you know, kind of counted out and just disregarded. And so, something as simple as having a pencil made a big difference in me being able to help teach my class.
1: Let's take another break. We're talking with Jackson Olson. Uh, he is uh, he recounts his experiences teaching for Teach for America in his book Teaching for America: Life and the Struggle for One Day. We'll move the story to North Carolina. That's where he lives now. Uh, he and his family are, are still there, and uh, uh, Jackson Olson is the founding principal of Henderson Collegiate High School in Henderson, uh, North Carolina. Um, and uh, we'll get into maybe uh, some, some examples of students who've really impressed themselves on Jackson Olson's mind, talk more about his teaching experiences following this break.
0: UPR original series, Crossing Borders, is a year-long storytelling project between UPR and the USU Office of Global Engagement, providing services for international students and scholars, and facilitating study abroad opportunities for students and faculty. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. And to explore more of the Crossing Borders series, head over to upr.org. I'm Spencer Holsey, an Access Utah producer here at Utah Public Radio. One of my jobs here at UPR is to bring you the stories that you want to hear. But in order for that to happen, I need to hear from you first. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear them. You can visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share story ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag, #IamUPR. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Jackson Olson. He's a Cache Valley native and he lives now in North Carolina. Ended up there with uh with uh, teaching. He'd set out to be a lawyer and uh, ended up as a teacher. He's the uh, founding principal, the founding principal of Henderson Collegiate High School. Uh he and his wife taught in uh, schools in North Carolina as part of Teach for America and uh, that's where they are now. The book is Teaching for America: Life in the Struggle for One Day that one day as Jackson Olson, uh says is the uh, the motto the slogan of Teach for America one day all children in this nation will have the opportunity to attain an excellent uh, education. Uh so Jackson Olson, um I'd like to, uh, to hear maybe about a memorable student or or two maybe in the in North Carolina. There's uh, I know from the book there there are some students who really had an impact on you.
3: Yeah, there were many. Um the one that I talk a lot about in the book, um I gave him the pseudonym, uh, Alex, but he was uh, a Hispanic student from Henderson, who was just soft-spoken and, uh, really, really hard-working kid who just, I feel like, uh, was seemingly invisible for a lot of his life, uh, to his peers, to his parents, to, to a lot of the people around him, but he was, a uh, he was definitely a, a strong relationship, a student I had a strong relationship with. Um, I also don't know where he is today. I remember um, a, on the day that that group of students, my first group of students, graduated from high school, I was looking for Alex in the group in the crowd, and I was sad to see he was not there. And I still, to this day, don't know what became of him—if he moved or if he dropped out. Um, but I've always always thought about him and how he impacted me. Um, and really, I think I think I say this in the book, but in many ways, my students taught me more about the world than I think I taught them. Um, and so I've always been really grateful for that. Um, and, and then there's a whole new group of students that I'm, I'm really, truly proud of and has been really Im- impacted by. And then there, those are my students at Henderson Collegiate uh, High School, uh, where I'm the principal. And we have a group of, right now our school is about 300 students. And... Um, they are right now doing some really big things and on track to um, graduate. In fact, we have right now 100% of our oldest uh, class is on track to graduate from high school. And as of now, 100% of them are on track to um, to go to college uh, in terms of their, their curriculum path and the courses they're taking. And um, so I'm really proud of them as well and could probably go on for hours about many of their individual stories and what they're doing. But we're... We're really excited about their uh, stories. Uh, They're about, they're one year away from graduating. So next year we'll have our first graduating class. And at this point, we're expecting um, some of our students potentially to go to Ivy League schools, um, others to go to some of the best public schools. Uh, We have students who are on track to to attend schools like NC State or UNC uh, or Duke University. And so we're just really incredibly proud of them and excited for the for the impact and change that they're going to make in this community.
1: And that's that's very hopeful. That changes the trajectory of their lives, right, if you get them to, to college.
3: It, it certainly does. Uh, as, as I mentioned, uh, about 90 to 95 percent of our students currently at Henderson Collegiate um, are coming from low-income backgrounds, and about 80 percent of them would be first-generation college students. And so if you think about the power that, that that could have of having all of these students become the first in their family to go to college and then the impact that that can have uh, through generations and, and through their posterity, it's it's very um, it's inspiring. And it gives you a lot of hope, uh, not just for this community of Henderson, but uh, for the broader picture of, of our country.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the challenges and uh, the commitment required of a successful teacher. Um, you write in the book that uh, you kind of establish this reputation among your students there, that uh, Mr. Olson, he's, he's crazy, he's willing to do just about anything, right? That's, uh, so they're they kind of delighted by this. And you write in the book, and, and we have a part of this queued up, um, an example of uh, of this of how Mr. Olson's willing to do just about er- anything. Set this up. You you give the students an assignment, right? They 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 are to rewrite the Gettysburg Address in any way they want, right. Right? Uh, right? What kinds of things did you get back?
3: Um, we had some students uh, turn the Gettysburg Address into poetry. I mean, the whole point of the exercise was to kind of. Um, transcribe or decode the the language and the vernacular that Abraham Lincoln used in the Gettysburg Address, so we wanted them to be able to, to make it real for them and really understand it. So they translated it um in a number of different ways. We had one, one student turn it into a Sunday sermon, like he was a pastor uh, at his church, <laughs> and we had one student turn it into poetry, and others turned it into songs. Um, so it was just a, we got a wide variety, but it, and at the end of the activity, all of them had created new meaning out of this more archaic language.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful exercise. And then Mr. Olson says, "Well, I took the assignment on myself, right?" And he had a he had a student filming this. This is on YouTube. Let, let's just hear just a bit of this. I want to I want to uh, read your caption here. Getting students to appreciate the Gettysburg Address can be challenging. So I embraced my whiteness and my awkward rapping skills and came up with this little number. It's called Gangsta Gettysburg Address. Here's a part of it. They're just a portion of the gangsta Gettysburg dress. That's Jackson Olson. I, I, I I admire you. Um, I, I wouldn't be that good and I don't know if I'd even attempt it. That's, that's pretty good. And the, and the kids are loving it.
3: Yeah. Well, I think kids generally enjoy anytime you are willing to, um, self-deprecate or make a fool of yourself, which I certainly did. Um, i never anticipated it being played on this radio show or a broader audience, so it made a bigger fool out of me, which I really, <laughs> I really appreciate. But, um, you know, it, it, it's just, I, I was really just trying to be creative. Uh, you get to a point as a teacher where you are trying to think, how can I make this relatable? How can I make this mean anything to my kids? And when you're teaching U.S. history, uh, that can present a lot of challenges, um, so I just I, I was just willing to to try something kind of foolish in a way to try and reach students. Um, to be honest, I don't know that many of my students really better understood the Gettysburg Address because of that, but I think they certainly may remember it more.
1: Yeah, and I think a key there's a connection there, right? If Mr. Olson's willing to get up and do this, then he cares, right? And I I remember in the book uh, you you. Uh, a, f- a friend of yours an acquaintance of yours from earlier calls you and said guess what i'm g- i'm going to teach uh, do teach for america what's your advice and your advice uh off the cuff was was love the students love the kids
3: yeah yeah i think that's i think that's got to be kind of your your cornerstone uh as a teacher if if you don't love kids and if you're not there for kids you're going to find it to be a pretty miserable profession um because it's it's hard it's hard work it's work that doesn't go away. It's kind of perpetual work, right? So your, your school day might end at four or five o'clock, but you take home large stacks of papers to grade and, and you, you go to bed every night, exhausted, and you wake up early and you're doing all these things. And so it, it, if you don't love kids and if you're, you're not in it for them, then I think it it's just going to be a miserable profession to be in. Um, so that was my advice to, to my friend was, uh, if, if you could do nothing else, uh,
1: that's the most important thing. Hmm. I we just have a couple of minutes left. I want to bring things full circle. So you, uh, even after Teach for America, you were you were thinking, well, I'm, that was a great experience. I'm going to become a lawyer. Um, and yeah. you have, uh, I, I love the way you put it in the book. You you describe you and the law as as in this dance. You're you're gazing into each other's eyes, and in the end, you decide you're not for each other. What uh, what happened there? Yeah.
3: Well, I. Um I applied to the University of Utah again after my two-year experience, um, thinking this is all going according to plan. am going to go right uh, to the University of Utah and pick up where we left off two years before. And um, at the same time, I was approached um, uh, about an opportunity at North Carolina State University uh, and was offered a, a full fellowship and scholarship to uh, attend and, and get my master's in school administration. From NC State, and so uh, I got an acceptance letter from the University of Utah again, and I had this acceptance offer from NC State, and was at that fork in the road once again, trying to figure out well, where do I go and what do I do? So it was another time of uncertainty, um, and you know, at the end of the day, we just decided that our work here in North Carolina, our work in in education, wasn't done, and I didn't have the, the spark or the fire in me to, to pursue law anymore like I, like I had, uh, for years previous. So it just, it just dawned on me that, you know, this is actually where I'm needed. Um, and so I went to NC State and, and got my master's there and became a, a principal. And, um, and that's what led me to be here now, uh, a principal of my own school here at, in Henderson in the same community that I first started teaching in back in 2009.
1: And your wife really, uh, I guess got the bug, right? She's become an award winning teacher, as you mentioned
3: before. Yeah. Yeah, she did. I mean, we both really struggled. We really did in our first year. Um, there were times where we both questioned whether we were going to make it. Um, I'm really grateful that we did because, uh, as a result, my wife went on to teach and become a great teacher. Um, and she was a teacher of the year, uh, multiple times and, has uh, recorded some of the highest state test scores for, uh, for science that the county had ever seen. And, um, you know, she, she has impacted so many lives uh, of both students and of teachers that she now works with because she's now an administrator as well. Um, so she, she has impacted so many lives as a result of her staying in education, and I'm really, truly proud of her and, and just in awe of all that she's accomplished.
1: Well, we are out of time. The book's a very interesting book, Teaching for America, Life, and the Struggle for One Day. I just want to say at the end, Jackson Olson, uh, thank you so much for the work you do, all the teachers uh, do. It's a a noble work and underappreciated a lot of times. So thank you for that, and thank you for the conversation. Appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thank you for having
1: me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.
0: The UPR original series, Crossing Borders, is a year-long storytelling project between UPR and the USU Office of Global Engagement, providing services for international students and scholars, and facilitating study abroad opportunities for students and faculty. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. And to explore more of the Crossing Borders series, head over to upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCE.